Okay. Is Neil anywhere around? Neil, um, thank you for last week and uh, just being with us this week. It's, it's just been such a joy. And uh, we wish you uh, all God's favor as you go back to the motherland, England, um, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And um, Neil last week got us started with Luke's gospel, which here's what I'm hoping for as we dive into this, that it's not just a series of sermons, but that as a community, we're studying this. And uh, so starting today, we're going to kind of go at a slow pace, but I'm just encouraging you all um, to incorporate this in your Bible reading during the week, um, the first couple of chapters for now. That way it's not just a sermon. That way you are, with the help of the Holy Spirit, digesting and eating it yourself. Does that sound like a good plan? Okay, good. Um, This feels like Christmas right now, the text we're going to read. And I'm kind of excited to actually look at a Christmas text outside of the context of Christmas because I think sometimes they just get so Christmasized. We get to look at just kind of the raw nature of of these Christmas texts um, apart from all the trappings of Christmas. So today we're going to look at verses 5 through 25. And uh, we love to stand for the reading of God's word, so please stand. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Wow. How would you like God's word to say that about you? Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time for burning of incense came and the assembled worshipers were praying outside, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, gripped with fear. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will call him John. He will be a joy and delight to many. Many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any fermented drink. He, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How will I know? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, my wife is well, along in years. The angel said to him, (laughs) I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which become true at their appointed time. 
This is God's word for now. You can be seated. All right, let's, uh, let's start with the historical context because Luke is a historian. And so when he begins uh, this, this chunk with these words, when Herod was king of Judea, basically that little clause, he's given us a lot of the historical context of Jesus' birth. And there's so much to that simple statement. I don't know if you know this, but Herod at this time is the richest man in the world. He's Bill Gates, and it's not even close. I don't have time to explain to you how he got all his money. But what he does is he uses his wealth uh, to persuade Rome to have this little piece of real estate in their empire in which he gets to rule it. And he transforms it, and he modernizes it, for lack of a better word, with palaces and harbors, temples, Roman spas, theaters. Even Jerusalem itself is turned into a world-class city. In fact, one of the things when I take people to Israel, they're always blown away. I mean, they just can't believe all the leftovers of Herod because there's a temple here and one of his seven palaces here. I mean, you can't escape. His footprint is still in that part of the world. And there's a reason why he's called Herod the Great. What Herod calls himself... He calls himself king of the Jews. And although he's not a Jew by blood, he's a Jew by conversion, he prides himself on being or trying to be the greatest king the Jews have ever had. But here's what Herod is. He's a megalomaniac. I mean, he's cut out of the same cloth as as a Hitler or a Stalin. In fact, anyone who's a threat to him in any way, he just, he just puts him to death. He put to death thousands of people just because they might have been the smallest threat. He put to death his own wife. If you want to know how crazy he was, he had her embalmed so he could still look at her dead body every night and talk to her. It's crazy. He had several of his sons killed. In fact, Caesar once said about Herod, he says, it's better to be Herod's pig because he's Jewish and he's kosher. (laughs) It's better to be uh, uh, Herod's pig than his own son. So when Luke tells us when Herod was king of Judea, it would be the equivalent of saying when Hitler was the Fuhrer of Germany. In fact, if you know anything that was going on at that time in German history when, when, when Hitler reigned, And his relationship to God's people, the church, the pastors of Germany pretty much became a puppet. Hitler's puppet. Same thing is going on with Herod and the people, the the godly people of his day. The entire temple, nation, people are under Herod's brutal control And this is the context in which Jesus is born. It's a time in which it, on all appearances, evil reigns. It's dark. It's oppressive. But also because of this, and I think that's some of the things that we're feeling today in our world, this it sometimes feels like, like on all appearances, that, that evil is reigning. It, we're living in times that are increasingly dark. And hopefully, we are like the people of God at that time. There's this sense of expectancy. 
that in the midst of all of this, that God is going to do something. And as great as the darkness might be, it's like, come on, God, we're waiting. And this is the context, then, in which Luke is going to zoom in upon an elderly priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth. This story is beautiful. I didn't realize how beautiful it was until I studied it this week. This story is a microcosm, too, of the times. Because through Zechariah and Elizabeth, we can peer into the historical setting in which Jesus comes to the world. So I want to start with this. I want to start with who Zechariah and Elizabeth are. Look at verse 5. In the time of Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife also was a descendant of Aaron. Zechariah is a priest. What's a priest? Priests are the ones who serve the temple. They're the ones who make it work. They're the ones who carry out its function. And the temple, of course, is kind of a combination between our Capitol building and the Vatican. It's their national symbol. It's the centerpiece of all religious expression. Jews back then, as they do today, simply called the temple the house. Because first and foremost, in their minds, this was God's house. Yes, God was everywhere, but in their minds, this was his living room. And so as God's living room, the temple became the place of worship. It was a house of prayer. It's the place where people came to meet with God. The priest's role in all of this was this. You're going to meet with a holy God and you're a sinner. You're unclean. It's our job to clean you up and make you presentable so you can draw near. And they did that through sacrifices and prayers and things like that. Other things you need to know about priests, especially at this time in history, priests are the aristocracy. Not just in terms of title or status, but also wealth. Because this temple is a huge money maker. And all the money after Herod got his share was pretty much divided among the priests. So these are the guys that live in the posh districts in Jerusalem. They're, they're living in these well-to-do homes. Some of them are mansions. Many of them have a warm weather home in Jericho where they can get away from everything. So you have to imagine with all this money, all this power, I mean, what do you expect? It became corrupt. Add to that the Herod piece. And this place of worship, instead of being a place where, where godly people are serving the people of God to become more godly, it's become a den of robbers. In fact, there's a whole group of priests, which we'll probably talk about later, who are going to be so disgusted by this. They want nothing to do with it. They wash their hands clean, and they go live out in the desert and form a community there. And because of them... Uh, we have the Qumran scrolls today. Look at what it says about Zechariah and Elizabeth in verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees 
blamelessly. In other words, what that means is they knew the book. They knew Torah. They didn't just know it. They walked it out. They lived it. With all their heart. Because this is what God is looking for. Hear me. He's not looking for hands raised. He is a God who looks for obedience. We can raise our hands. We can sing. God loves obedience. But it also says this. Look at verse 7. It says they were childless. They were barren. I mean, you have no idea how much devastation is wrapped up in that one word, barren. I mean, it's painful today to be barren. But in that time, there was nothing worse than to be barren because a person's status, their livelihood, their meaning, their significance, it's, it's tied directly to their ability to produce a family. So really, being barren in this day was probably the equivalent of what it means to be bankrupt in our day. Add to this that it says they're advanced in years. They're old. It's easily, easy to assume they're probably in their 60s. They've been married 30, 40, 50 years. You need to feel the decades of pain, disappointment, frustration, this what's wrong with us, God, thing that's going on in these two. And if this isn't enough, they also had to deal with the shame that would be placed upon them by their community. Because we know that the rabbis during this time, some of them, said that there were basically two signs that you could tell if one was cursed by God. One was if you were a leper. And think about how the lepers were treated at this time. Complete outcasts. The other was barrenness. I mean, they would have felt so much shame from their community. I mean, because in the Jewish mindset, and this is taken from, from certain texts, but, but abused, they, they believe that God blesses the righteous, but he curses the wicked. So, so barrenness was seen as, as God's curse on a person who needs God's discipline. I think we all know how good religious people can be at Shaming, whether it be through judging or whether it be through their criticizing, uh, through, through their need to be right about everything. Because religious people like to, they don't even like to, they insist on there being simple black and white answers to some complex realities. Therefore, when, when someone loses a job, religious people are very quick to say, well, they just must be lazy or incompetent. Or someone's kid goes off the deep end. And, and, and so a religious person will look at that and just say, well, the parents must be, be really bad parents. 
Or if someone gets sick, sometimes they'll even say, well, they're probably just not spiritual enough to get healing. And I'm telling you, this kind of critical, judgmental perspective, it's so un-Jesus-like. I mean, this is the product that comes from, from pride plus religion. And it's the antithesis of the humility that comes from the gospel. Because at the heart of the gospel, the gospel says to me, and I preach it to myself every day, Rod, you are so sinful that the God of the universe had to literally die for you. And the gospel, when it comes into our core, it just it, it humbles us. So we're left when we really drink it in. Not being able to judge or criticize anyone. Now this whole theme of, of, of barren, it's, 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 we're going to see that it's going to be a strong theme in Luke's gospel. In a few chapters from, from this chapter, Jesus is going to stand up and, and quote Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is really going to be his, his mission statement. And Isaiah 61 begins with the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's anointed me to preach gospel, good news to who? The poor. To the barren. And what we're going to see over and over again in Luke's gospel, it's not the insider, but the, the outsider and the marginalized who are going to get God in his grace. It's not the righteous, but it's the sinner. It's the tax collector. It's the prostitute that gets God's, God's grace. It's not going to be the strong, but it's going to be the weak. It's not going to be the exalted, but it's going to be the humbled. Because this isn't just a theme in Luke's, Luke's gospel. This is a theme of the whole, whole Bible. Going all the way back to Abraham, when God wants to set in motion his, his wonderful plan of redemption, it's like he looks to and fro throughout all the earth looking for the most barren couple he can find. A couple approaching 100 years old and says, okay, through you, Abraham. And you see this over and over again when he calls out a people. God himself even says about this special people. He says, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest or the most righteous, but I chose you because you were the smallest and the least. And you see it throughout the Bible that whenever God is looking for a man or a woman to do some special task, it's not who we think he would choose. He looks for barren It's Gideon, who's from the least of the least. It's David, who's the least of eight brothers. It's Moses, who's a washed-up shepherd. Then you get to the Gospels, and you see, now it's in this couple, and then it's Mary. And then Jesus, the disciples he picks. God loves barren. He looks to and fro throughout all the earth for people who are small in their own eyes and who are small in the world's eyes. Maybe stop and think about it. I mean, gospel, gospel means good news. Who is, who is the gospel good news to? It's not good news to the people on top or the people who run things or are in charge of things. In fact, it's a threat to them. 
It's good news to the poor. It's good news to the barren. And it's not just good news, it's great news. Because what the gospel does is it humbles the exalted and exalts the humble. How barren are you today? How in touch with you are you right now with your need? I'm going to push this further because I think there's a strong connection between verse 6 and verse 7. That to say verse 6 about anyone, it's oftentimes because of the reality of verse 7 in their life. It's the barrenness that produces the righteousness. It's losing. It's seasons of hurt. It's the cancer. It's the disappointment. It's losing a job. It's a prolonged singleness. These are the things that cause us to come to the end of ourselves and to seek God and to look after him with all our heart. Now, for Zechariah, I think there's a whole other level of shame and disappointment that he's experiencing. Because look at verses 8 and 9. It says, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Thank you to Josephus, the historian who's writing about uh, this time period. We have some very interesting information about how the priests and the temple functioned. For instance, Josephus tells us that at this time, there are 20,000 men serving as priests. And so for organizational purposes, this 20,000 was divided into 24 divisions of 850 priests per division. Each division then would be assigned a whole week, and you would work a week and then get 23 weeks off. Think about that. So essentially, a priest worked two weeks during the whole year. Now, when your, your division of 850 was on duty, of course, that division is responsible to run the entire temple, from the Levitical choir to the daily sacrifices to cleaning and maintaining everything. But one person, one priest each day, one of the first things they did was selected, chosen, to go into the holy place all by himself, and light the incense. And he would stand, literally, the, the, the incense was right here, the curtain was right here, and the Holy of Holies would have been right there. And here's the deal. This is all in Josephus. He says, um, because there are 20,000 priests, a priest could only perform this once in their lifetime, which is why they casted lots. It was their way of kind of putting this whole thing into God's hands so God would choose the priest for that day. You'd kind of be lucky if you could do it once in your lifetime. For decades, Zechariah goes unpicked. Day after day, week after week, decade after decade, waiting to be picked by God. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me? And then all these decades of waiting for a child. How long, O oh Lord? 
How long will you hide your face from me? Maybe to add some insult to injury, does anybody know what Zechariah means? I mean, names to us mean very little. But for a Jew, your name sets the whole course for your life. I remember our tour guide, Nadav, one, one time I just asked him, I said, Nadav, how often do you think about your name? And he just responded, matter-of-factly, every day. He said, my name means generous. I'm telling you, when he told me that, I literally teared up. I've never met a more generous person in my whole life. You know what Zechariah means? Whom the Lord remembers. Day after day. How long? When will you remember me, God? And see, this is where Zechariah is just a microcosm of his people because there are people who are desperately waiting. How long, O oh Lord? How long must our our nation wait? How long must our enemy triumph over us? How long must we be oppressed? How long do we have to live in this darkness? How long until you send Messiah? I I know some of you are here today. Some of you are praying Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? How long will I have this sorrow in my heart? Here's the deal. We will all be in this place. I don't care who you are because life at some point in the game, it's going to shatter certain dreams we have. It's going to be so inconsiderate of, of expectations we, we, we might have. And life will expose us. And it will show us our barrenness. And we're not good at waiting. Because we live in a culture today of instant gratification. If we have a question, we need it answered now. If something's broken, we need it fixed right now. We want quick solutions. Even our spirituality, we have this name it and claim it quality to it. In fact, I'm reading this book right now called Slow Church and... One of the reasons I like it, because it's reminding me of how God is in the business of slow. <laughs> I mean, just look at creation. I mean, just look, look at how long it takes something to grow. How long it takes a seed to go into the ground and become a great tree. We're not just talking moments or even days, but we're talking months, years. But see, we demand instant, especially with God. We somehow have come to think that God needs to instantly fix our problems, instantly heal our diseases, instantly transform our lives, instantly fill us with the fire of his presence, instantly turn our mourning into joy. It's just like fast food. And see, when this doesn't happen, then many of us are tempted to throw in the towel with God because if we don't get what we want, when we think we should have it, we just give up on them. And we move to another quick fix. 
God is comfortable with slow. Think about how long it takes God to start implementing his plan of salvation through Abraham. There are literally hundreds upon hundreds of years between Adam, when the world falls apart, and when God says through you, Abraham, salvation is going to come. And then another, not even hundreds of years, but literally thousands of years before God finally gives us the remedy in Christ. God is comfortable with slow. Ask yourself right now, what are your expectations towards God? Like when he's supposed to do things for you. Whether it's an illness or unemployment or being single or having a wayward son or daughter or infertility, or spiritual dryness. What are your expectations towards God? See, God over and over again asks his people to wait. In fact, the Bible has a clause for this. It's called waiting upon the Lord. It's all over the Psalms. I'll just start reading some. I mean, I could give you psalm after psalm. Indeed, no one who waits for you will be put to shame, O Lord. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait. My soul waits for you. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong, Hazak, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. For from him comes salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Psalm 130 is one of my favorite psalms. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word put my hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning more than watchmen wait for the morning my soul waits for you and sometimes they even add this word uh, patiently to the waiting in fact patiently the King James Version just nails it it when it translates this word It translates this word as what? Does anybody know? Long-suffering. It means to suffer long. Psalm 37 says, "Be, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And do not fret when men succeed in their ways. And do not fret. It only leads to evil. How much fretting do you do? We can either fret... I know. I'm good at that. (laughs) Or we can wait. I mean, when when you read the Bible, all the spiritual champions had this life marked by waiting on the Lord. 
Because at the end of the day, this is the essence. It's the heart of faith. It's waiting. It's long-suffering. Hebrews 11, where it just lays out the hall of fame of faith. It says, by faith, Abraham. And then it describes how he had to wait. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. And it essentially says, they waited In fact, the whole chapter ends, it says, they were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what God had promised. Think about that. They never received what God promised. Their whole life was marked by waiting. Because that's the essence of faith. It's it's, it's trusting God, keeping our eyes fixed on him, walking out in obedience the things that he's laid before us in the unemployment, in the broken marriage. It's trusting God with my infertility. It's trusting God with, with my cancer. For Zachariah and Elizabeth, it's... It's verse 6. We should all memorize verse 6 this week. In their waiting, both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. It's that long obedience in the same direction. With our eyes fixed on him. It's not our emotions. It's not our feelings. It's walking. Fixing our eyes on him. In fact, Luke, I think, wants us to see something in verses 12 and 13. When the angel finally comes and says that they're going to have a son... The way the angel puts it is your, your prayer has been heard, almost implying that through all these decades of infertility, they never stopped praying, never stopped seeking, never stopped trusting. Can you say that today? That irrespective of your feelings, your emotions, or the hurt and the disappointment, that you can honestly say, God, my heart is still set on you. And I'm going to love you with everything I have. Now, when you read this, you see that none of our waiting and our trusting is perfect. I mean, even Zechariah. Look at verse 9. Basically says, the angel says, you could have a son. He's like, how will I know? I love it. He gets picked that day. He gets picked. He goes into the sanctuary. He gets in the sanctuary. This angel of the Lord startles him and then tells him, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. You and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a son. And Zechariah's response is, well, how will I know? I mean, you can see that his faith is tainted by doubt and unbelief, but give the dude a break. I mean, think about all those years of waiting. He has a wife who's probably 60 years or older. 
In fact, his response, how will I know, is the exact word-for-word response that Abraham gave to God when God said to Abraham, Abraham, your 90-year-old wife is about to have a son. Abraham said the same thing back to God. God, how will I know? And then God responds to Abraham's how will I know by putting on this covenant-making ceremony of that day. And that day, God came down and basically made a vow to Abraham. I'm going to keep my covenant. God here responds to Zacharias, how will I know? By making him mute. He's made speechless, which is probably the most appropriate response Zacharias could have to what he's just been told. But know this, Zacharias is the first to be told of the imminent coming of the Messiah. And don't ask me why why, um, Abraham gets this covenant-making ceremony from God and why Zechariah is made mute, I don't know. But I do know this, Zechariah goes home that day, although unable to speak, it's the happiest day of his life. And listen to how his wife responds. Look at verse 25. This is Elizabeth. The Lord has done this for me. He has shown his grace, his favor. And he has taken away all my disgrace from the people. All those days, those those years, those decades of waiting, God honors them. God honors their faithfulness. God just turned the tables because their shame is now turned into glory. They're being marginalized, and on the outs, now they're at the very center of what God is doing, because not not only are they going to have a son, this isn't just any son. Their son is going to be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. In fact, Jesus will one day say about their son, there is none born from woman who is greater than John the Baptist. I mean, you talk about a reversal. I can see them together singing Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. He heard our cry. He lifted us up out of the mud and the mire. And he placed us on a rock and gave us a firm place to stand and a new song to sing. Listen, nothing is impossible with God. You know what Elizabeth means? Anybody have that name here, Elizabeth? It's my wife's name. It means the vow of the Lord. So when you put them together, Zachariah and Elizabeth, it means the Lord remembers his vows. That's God. And that's why Luke is writing this gospel because he's here to tell us the wait is finally over. Not just for a a barren couple, but for a barren nation. For the world. God is about to fulfill and keep all the promises that he was making in the Old Testament and he's going to do it through Messiah. And Messiah is going to be the great reversal to everything that shames us, to all the wrongs that are done to us, to all the things that oppress us. 
Messiah came to enter our shame and the shame of the world so that we know him and trust him and wait upon him. We can say what Elizabeth says. He has shown his favor to me and he has taken away all my shame, all of it. Let me just end with Isaiah 40. It's one of my favorite texts in the scripture, partly because it's my dad's favorite text. And when you have a dad like me that you look up to and he has a favorite text, you make it your own favorite text. And it's the end of Isaiah 40. It starts with, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. That's not true, but that's how Israel felt. And God speaks into that and says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. Because he's a God who gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fail. But those, sorry NIV, let me just correct you here. Those who wait upon the Lord... They will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In fact, that word there for renew, to renew, it's the word exchange. And that's exactly what the gospel is. It's the great reversal through the, the great exchange. God in Christ exchanges his strength for our weakness. He exchanges his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He exchanges our weariness for his power. Are you waiting? Are you trusting? I just want a moment of silence right now. Psalm 62 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. And in this silence, ask yourself, what area of your life right now are you not entrusting to God? You're still trying to control it. You're still trying to fix it. Let him speak to you. It's usually in silence when God takes this little finger and he puts it on the thing in my, my life or my heart that someone needs to put their, 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 their finger on. And he kind of just says to me, do you see that rod? Let him put his finger on some things right now.
and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. We're not going to sing. We're not going to have a time of response. You can just let everyone leave. And I'll tell you why. God wants more than a song. God wants more than 15 minutes. God wants a life of obedience. Go and obey God. Obey him with everything you have. Because he's worth it. Please stand for the blessing. By the way, one little detail. So when Zechariah comes from lighting the, the, the incense and he comes to the steps where the 850 priests would be gathered, he's supposed to pronounce the number six blessing. <laughs> Imagine it. He can't speak. Okay? He can't do it. That's when they know something big happened in there. But he eventually gets it out with a little added ver- verbiage in the song he sings. Read that song. And this is what he would have said. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift his countenance over you and give you his peace. And I'll add, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And everybody said, amen. Have a great week, you guys.